Amen. Thank you, Brother Rice. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 6 tonight as we continue in our journey in this matter of victory in the spiritual warfare. And we are in a warfare, we're in a battle. And one of the things that the devil, I believe, wants us to uh, do is to miss the fact that there is a battle. Or at least become occupied with a battle that's not the real battle. And so we want to be not ignorant of his devices because the Bible's given us what his devices, what his strategy is. And so we, in finding this out, we can be helped in order that we might have victory. And so let's go to that familiar passage in Ephesians 6 and, and let's go ahead and stand and we'll read verse number 10 and 11 and 12 once again. By the time we're done with this, we perhaps will have it memorized. And um, great verses to have memorized, Ephesians 6 and verse number 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high Places. Now we looked at uh, the last, the previous uh, service Wednesday night. We, we were looking at Satan's aim. Before that, we saw the location of the battle, and we get that out of here. And tonight, I'd like for us to look at uh, the four stages in Satan's strategy. The four stages in Satan's strategy. Thank you. Please be seated. When we discuss the location of the battle, we mentioned what Paul says here is spiritual wickedness in high places. He refers to it in the book of Ephesians as the heavenlies and other places. And we mentioned several things that are found here. And just in review, see how well we recall uh, what we've looked at thus far. What are some of the things that we find in this spiritual realm? Somebody give me one. We gave about four or five. What is it? The saints, the people of God positionally were seated at the right hand of the Father and, and seated in position with Him in the heavenlies. What else is found in the heavenlies? Angels. The angels are there. That's right. What else? The, our blessings are there. They're waiting for us to access those. Jesus is there. And then there is one other Thing that we mentioned. The demonic activity, the demonic realm is there. And so if we're going to do battle with the right enemy, then we've got to know where he's doing battle. And um, then we looked at on Wednesday night, Satan's aim. He's going to work. He's going to go after. He's after you. And he's going after ultimately to disrupt what God's doing. And he's going to do it through you as an individual. And then he's going to do it through your family. And then he's going to go after the church. And then he's going to go after society. And so it helps us to understand that. Well, tonight, again, we're looking at these, the stages in the strategy. We're going to look at four of them. The first one in which Satan tends to work. I think these are very important. 
In fact, as I looked through this, I, I felt like I'm, I'm not really squeezing it like it, it needs to be. And I think we can gloss over it. And so that's, that's why if Jesus doesn't come back, we have another service. And, and, and I'll work on it some more and we'll make sure we hit it on Wednesday night because we will still deal with this matter of spiritual warfare. But I don't want to minimize this because of the familiarity of the words. But here's the first one. It's desire. He's going to work through desire. A common term we often associate with desire is the word lust. He works through desire. Now, lust is not necessarily a bad word as it's found in the Bible, nor is the word desire a negative thing. It's not bad to have desire. Um, legitimate desire motivates us in our lives and it provides that avenue for obtaining satisfaction and delight. It's not necessarily bad. However, when desire or lust manifests itself through illegitimate means, then it turns into a temptation, a solicitation to evil, and it gives the potential for sin. So the desire for food is that good or bad? It's good. Gluttony, however, is sin. The desire for sex is good. God created that. Immorality, however, is a sin. Desire for sleep is good. Laziness is a sin. And so Satan's initial strategic point in our lives is to play on a legitimate, God-given desire within us. And what he does is he gets in there and he twists it into something illegitimate. He's working through your desire. He knows the desire cannot be avoided or ignored because God planted it within us. So Satan tries to warp that desire by influencing how you will direct and use it. He wants the desire to be the master over you rather than you under the leadership of the Holy Spirit mastering your desire. That's why Paul talks about this, that he's not going to be brought under the master, mastery of anything. He's not going to give himself to something when he is living his life for someone, and that's Jesus Christ. So desire, desire is very important. But then there's a second stage in Satan's strategy. It's deception. Deception. I think a great illustration, this is why what I mean by maybe oversimplifying it, but, but I think it, it still helps but it's the idea how a fisherman is going to set out to catch fish. And um, most fishermen that I know of, they don't put an empty hook into the water and expect to catch something. It's not going to work. Instead, they're going to bait that hook. They're going to bait it so that it appears to the fish like this is a free meal. Satan does exactly the same thing. He's not going to give you an empty hook. The Bible tells us of Joseph that he was tempted by Potiphar's wife. Now, it doesn't say it, but I don't think that she would have been an ugly woman. 
not to Joseph. If so, there wouldn't have been a temptation. And Satan knows, he knows that to, to one man, this person that he may use like Delilah and Samson's life, this, this one woman to one man may look like a fox and to another man may look like a dog. And Satan knows whatever that would be. And um, we'll pass over, I'll just get, get out of this quick here and just um, next point, just trying to figure out how to bridge to the next point. Satan doesn't simply throw unbaited hooks to us either. He doesn't advertise the, at the local bar by saying, Hey, come here, get drunk, become addicted to alcohol, lose your family, lose your kids into alcoholism and throw away your future. They don't advertise that way. But they sure are running a very high success rate of seeing this happen across our country. What Satan does using deception is a, a very common old salesman, traveling salesman technique. And that is the traveling salesman would get their potential customers um, by talking about something unrelated to the product and it allows them to get their foot inside the door. And the devil knows how to do that as well. He's diverting our attention and he tries to get God's people to let him into our lives little by little. First, it's just a foot in the door. Maybe it was a movie you should not have watched. Maybe it was a conversation you should not have had. Maybe it was a relationship that should not have been. And whatever it was, it may have seemed harmless at the very beginning and, and perhaps that's exactly what it was. But Satan works through your desire that leads to deception in order that he could just get his foot in the door. And it becomes easier to graduate you to the next level and buy what he is selling. See, the primary way Satan does this is by playing by playing this matter of deception, deceiving, and he plants an illegitimate or sinful idea in our minds. I think he did this with David. Remember David when he sinned by numbering Israel? And that's not what God wanted him to do, but here's why I say this. First Chronicles 21 and verse 1. The Bible says, and Satan stood up against Israel and provoked David to number Israel. I think Satan planted an illegitimate or sinful idea into the mind of David. And he's been at this a long time. And David got the idea that he didn't need God at that point. And that he was able to take care of the army himself. And as a result of David's disobedience to God's instructions, 70,000 people ended up losing their lives. Listen, whatever controls your mind controls your actions. And that's just one of the many reasons we should be saturating our hearts and minds with the wonderful word of God. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy word. 
Whatever controls your mind controls your action. Here's a third one. The third stage in Satan's strategy, after moving from desire to deception, it then goes to disobedience. Disobedience. Desire leads to deception. A legitimate desire that Satan will get into and manipulate. And when he manipulates that, he will bring about deception. And that deception is going to result in disobedience. Remember James chapter number 1 verse 15. When lust, desire hath conceived, it gives birth to sin. See, desire is not sin. Sin, however, is the illegitimate application and placement of desire. Sin is that illegitimate application and placement of that desire that you have. Again, we mentioned um, food, we mentioned sleep, we mentioned sex, and God gave us those desires. Sin occurs when you illegitimately place those and apply those in the wrong area, that is sin. And many a person has condoned their actions only simply because Satan has targeted you, he's after you, he's after your family, he's after this church, he's after this society, and he works at us, going at us through the desire. And he goes at us through deception once he gets a foot in there. And it's in order to lead us to disobedience. See, when a young child makes a decision, they make their decisions based upon their feelings, their desires. A child feels like playing. They feel like watching TV. They feel like eating or anything. The child says, I want that. I don't want that. If the desire is not managed, it can end up dominating the child's actions and forms of disobedience. That's why, at least here, we want to try to help nurture and support parents. And when we're working with the children, we don't want to aid the things that come natural to them by way of their desire. That's why in the nursery and in the children's services, we're not showing videos because that comes natural to them. Um, we, we, we are not, we're wanting to help them in the areas of discipline that would go against what they want. And yet there are some who really think, well, we shouldn't do this, this structural plan that pastor has for our kids. Why? Well, because they don't like it. Well, I'm not really concerned about what they like. You know, they, they would like to eat ice cream for every meal. That's not really what we're, we're patterning pattern, uh, our leadership around. But as the child matures into adulthood, that process of maturity, it will lead them to begin to operate based on not just desire, but now on their will. They may not like getting up at 5.30 a.m., but they have to in order to go off to the job that they now have. It's called responsibility. And, you know, as at the age of seven, that doesn't quite appeal to them. But when they get older, that maturity sets in. They see, you know, there's things I've got to do whether I want to or not. Now, listen, the victorious Christian life, 
Victorious Christian living occurs when the Holy Spirit's presence is free to manage, is free to lead and control our feelings, our emotions, and our desires. And the Spirit of the living God is able to do that. That's not to say we need to negate our feelings. We're human beings and emotions are real. But the placement of those emotions, the placement of those desires, they must be brought underneath the control and the restraint of the Holy Spirit. Or we run the risk of letting our emotions, our volatile, um, just up and down emotions, we run the risk of those emotions being captured and led astray by Satan right into sin. Now Philippians 2.13, I like this. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. It is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. That's Philippians 2.13. Now here's the point. Victory in spiritual warfare, it involves intimacy with God and identification with Jesus Christ. And that's why what we're looking at in Galatians, that's why we spent several messages just on Galatians 2.20, because there you find intimacy with the Lord and your identification. Victory in spiritual warfare, it involves intimacy and identification with Jesus Christ to such a degree that His will reveals itself as the dominant force in our will. See, when you get close to the Lord, you're going to find you delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. And your desires are going to be His desires. And His desires are going to be your desires. Again, that's Philippians 2.13. It is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Now that's the difference between victory and defeat. And only when God's will directs our lives will we then also be equipped with the power to do his will in our lives. Now listen, God promises to give us this power if and when our will aligns with his. But in order for us to align our will with God's will, it requires faith. In other words, we're going to have to trust God that he knows what he's talking about. The opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is it's disobedience. So when there's disobedience in our life, it just means we're not trusting God. We're not depending upon God. All right, last one. I don't know why Sunday nights go so much faster than Sunday mornings, but maybe it's because you'll listen faster. It just, it just goes by. Um, number four. Here's the fourth way in which the devil works. It's death. Death. See, Satan's intention in spiritual warfare is to cause us to miss out. We said this Wednesday night, to miss out on the goodness of God. And if we'll miss out on how good God really is, 
It'll lead us into a path of destruction. Now, James 1.15, again, we looked at that a moment ago or mentioned it. When lust, desire hath conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin, the second half of the verse tells us when sin is finished or when sin is accomplished, when sin has occurred, it brings forth death. Death. And Satan is out to produce death, not necessarily taking your last breath. Because sometimes he's going to be, I think, more effective at after he reaches you with death, not taking physical life out of you, but keep you a living, breathing corpse so that he can go after your family. So he can go after the church. And so that he can penetrate a society that has no salt, no light. So sin produces death in a variety of ways. And all of this death that I'm talking about outside of physical death, it, it, it diminishes our ability to experience God's abundant, victorious, spirit-filled, supernatural overcoming life. In other words, it just takes the life of God out of us. You've, you've been places, you've been in your life, you can maybe recall, you've been to a church service where you sense, you just don't really sense the presence of God. I tell you, the scariest and loneliest place to be, it's been said, is for a preacher standing in the pulpit when God's not. And that's why we put the emphasis on prayer, because we need God to show up. But what the devil's trying to produce, they're going after a legitimate desire and twisting it and making it an illegitimate application is to put a foot in the door of our life to bring about deception to lead us into some kind of disobedience because when disobedience occurs and sin takes place, it results in separation, a death. Adam and Eve, when they sinned, they died immediately, not physically, but they died the worst death. They were separated from the goodness of God. And death can show up as separation of a dream, a relationship, a career. Primarily, sin produces death within the fullness of our spirits as our fellowship is broken with God. And that's what sin destroys is that fellowship with God, that intimacy with God. And if we don't deal with the sin, when the Spirit of God deals with us about our sin, then we find ourselves cutting corners. You know, we'll do all the right things, but if we're not going to get right with God, we're going to shave off the transparency in prayer. We're going to shave off the parking and and staying put in a place in the Word of God where He wants to speak to us. In other words, we just make it academic. Because if we come at it sterile, then we don't hear Him. And if we don't hear Him, we think, well, just like our kids will sometimes say, I didn't hear you. And I remind them, it's your responsibility to hear us. Ephesians chapter 6, children obey. The word obey built into it is the word to hear. It's the idea they must hear. And God says, if you have ears to hear, hear. 
And James tells us you've been given ears, so be slow to speak and quick to hear, slow to wrath. Tell our kids you've got two ears for a reason, so shut up and listen. Um, we've got to say it a little bit different way. I know that some will say, we don't say shut up in the house. And so um, up, shut, whatever, whatever way you want to come at it. But it's important to hear. You know why that's so important in the house? Because you were teaching them how to respond to God. We are. So breaking fellowship with God makes us ineffective as believers. Breaking fellowship with God makes us ineffective as believers who have been designed to experience God. He wants you to know him fully. He wants you to experience him freely. But when fellowship is broken, you can do all the things for him, but there's a problem. As we saw earlier, Satan's goal is to make us ineffective. And he does it through a strategy of taking a legitimate desire, guiding it down a path towards sin, and then the death in relationships, death in hopes and careers and families, ministry, oftentimes what it'll do, wherever that death, that separation, that taking the life of God out of it, what, what will happen is it'll lead to depressing thoughts. It'll lead to discouragement. And discouragement is sin. Depression and discouragement, I believe, are Satan's aim. Because he seeks to make our lives void, empty of the abundance that Jesus has promised us. As a result of that, when we get depressed and discouraged, what else happens? Well, we question God. We question his promises. We question his goodness. Not only that, but then in our lives we feel miserable. We feel too dejected. To give God any glory. We get too dejected to witness to people. And so we're completely rendered ineffective. In fact, it can even cause some to blame God for their misery. In, in times, Satan tries to work himself out of a job. Now he's influencing his cohorts and minions are influencing but 2 Timothy 3 and verse 13, remember 2 Timothy 3 is the message for the last days. In the, the last days, and he goes on and gives us a description. 2 Timothy 3, 13 says, But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. And I think Satan is going to work in our lives in such a way to get us into his process. He has his own form of discipleship. And what he's doing is he is training the deceived to become deceivers themselves. He turns people into evangelists of deception. And what happens is people quickly and effectively spread lies among the rest of us of you know, God's not as good as what some of those songs that we sing about. You know, you know God, God maybe is good, but he's not been good to me. Look at what happened to me. Look, I did everything I knew to do. I, I trusted God. I believed God. And look at the mess. Look at what happened. Are you something like Job maybe? Would you like to curse God? Well, he's been good. 
all the time. But what happened is you let Satan's strategy begin to work in your life. And because Satan does not have the power, listen, he doesn't have the power of creation, he has to maximize the potential of deception. So he's turned deception into an art form. After all, he's been at this for several centuries. And he's quite masterful. And so masterful and so powerful, we are told that the Antichrist will sit in the temple as God and people will truly believe that he is God. That's how powerful. And, and, and we're even told it's going to happen and people can hear this is going to happen, but he's so powerful in his deception, it's still going to happen. Now, Satan's agenda, and this is in closing, his agenda and his strategy, they're all encompassing, extremely powerful, very effective. But there's something you and I need to know, and that is these two things. Satan's agenda and Satan's authority, they both have already been defeated. Satan and his minions, they've already lost the battle. Any advancement they make in your life or mine or this church on earth is because and only because you and I give permission to do so. The only power that Satan and his minions have is what power or authority is granted to them. Satan was able to get access to ruling this planet only because Adam and Eve gave permission for him to do so. Essentially, demons need permission from us to bring hell to us. They will not do it. They cannot do it without our permission. So let me say this. If hell is happening in your life, it's because hell has been given permission to do so. You've given the permission. Hell was told either through sin or circumstance, yes, I'm willing to yield to you. You communicated something like this. Hell, it's okay for you to rule my mind. It's okay for you to rule my emotions today. It's okay for you to rule my will or my body. Something like this. I give you permission to tell me that I'm not really a man, even though I was born a male. I give you, hell, permission to tell me I'm not really a woman, even though I was born a female. It's interesting in this whole matter of the uh, gender confusion and sex change and all these other um, genders that keep growing, however many genders you, you, that they've come up with, if, there, if, there is, if there's going to be, I mean, there's, there's hundreds, there's hundreds of genders now. But if there's going to be a sex change, there's only two genders. <laughs> a bunch of idiots. And, uh... Hell, I give you permission to tell me that I do want drugs. I need drugs and I can't stop using drugs. Hell, I give you permission to tell me I need a drink. I have to have that drink. I can't go to sleep without a drink. 
I give you permission to tell me it's okay to flirt with a coworker. I give you permission to tell me that I should look at pornography. I give you permission to tell me that I should wake up depressed, stay depressed, and go to bed depressed. I give you permission to tell me that I cannot control my anger, my spending, or my desires, that I'm not loved, or that I will never amount to anything of significance. And the list can go on and on and on of what we allow Satan to tell us that we can do or cannot do. And some of it may certainly be related to chemicals or biological malfunctions, but much of what we call mental illness today is actually caused by demonic activity that has been given permission to make someone mentally unstable. After 20 plus years of working with individuals through struggles in their lives as an evangelist and pastor and counselor, I'm convinced that much of what we label or try to drug away in somebody's life is a result of Satan having his way. Now, I'm not saying that the physical components are not real. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that they're often incited and encouraged by demons who have been allowed to roam free. Satan operates by consent. And a lot of times this consent can take place through a video game. And kids anymore, they are babysat. They are parented by video games and YouTube and putting a tablet in front of them. And there's a lot of of cooperation with Satan through these, these outlets. Satan operates by consent and cooperation. He operates by subtly changing the worldview, your beliefs, thought patterns of an individual, your family, your church, or society that he's targeting. And one of those schemes are adopted and into uh, your life. And once we take his, 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 uh, manipulating our desires to deceiving, to disobedience, separating us from the life of God, he is given greater permission to make himself at home. Much like cockroaches that have been allowed to stay in a filthy kitchen, demons will set up camp and they're difficult to drive off. And don't think he's afraid or intimidated by us. He went after Jesus himself. I want to tell you, it's hard to win a war. And the reason why it's difficult to drive them off is because it's hard to win a war when you don't even know where to show up to do battle. That's why this location is so important and the strategy is so important. And the foundational principle for a life of complete and total ongoing victory is we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. When we think people are our problem, we're going to continually address people and we're going to miss the root of the problem altogether. However, if people were to set their minds more on the spiritual realm and less on other people, more people might still be in their right minds. But when people's minds are divided, fighting this person and that challenge or some other kind of an issue, they don't seem to have much of a mind left at all. The people are real, yes. The problems are real, of course. The health issues are real. 
The challenges are real. The conflicts are real. The strongholds are real. But they're just not the root of the problem. And the job of Satan and his demons is to keep you and me from experiencing the abundant life of the Holy Spirit. He wants to keep us from experiencing the abundant, victorious, revived life of God that he has in store for us. And he does this by distracting us from focusing on the root. That's their full-time occupation. And we're not their first job assignment. They've had plenty of centuries, again, to study, to practice, and perfect this. But God, who is not bound by time or space, He's already won the battle. And learning His strategy is our key to overcoming Satan's strategy and live a life of victory. That's one of the reasons why we're putting out this family devotion going through 1 Corinthians 13 over the summer. Keeping us engaged with the mind of God. Keeping us on intimate terms with Him. Don't neglect what God highlights. Take time. Spend time in His presence. Draw nigh to God and He will draw nigh to you. Let's stand together please.